Stories That Changed the World. That's the title that I've chosen for our new series of lessons from Jesus' Parables. And over the Sundays in January and February, we'll be focusing on some of the most familiar and best-loved parables Jesus told as He illustrated important eternal truths for our everyday lives. Notice Matthew 13 and verse 3 begins, Then He, Jesus, told them many things in parables. Actually, during his three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus told nearly 40 different parables. In fact, more than one-third of all of the recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels are in parabolic form. So what is a parable? From childhood, I can remember being taught that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Literally, the word parable comes from the Greek word parbole, meaning to throw alongside of. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words gives this explanation. It signifies a placing of one thing beside another with a view to comparison. It is generally used of a somewhat lengthy utterance or narrative drawn from nature or human circumstances, the object of which is to set forth a spiritual lesson. It is the lesson that is of value. The hearer must catch the analogy if he or she is to be instructed. William Barclay wrote, In literature and in art there are certain possessions which the mind of man will not willingly let die. There are stories which are not so much the heritage and material of the scholar and the theologian as they are the possession of every person. And such are the parables of Jesus. Even in an age when men know less and less of the Bible and care less for it, it still remains that the parables Jesus told are the best known stories in the world. In fact, we could easily say that they are stories that changed the world. So why did Jesus teach in Parables. Well, Jesus' early followers wondered the exact same thing. So take your Bible and look with me at their question and Jesus' answer. Matthew 13, we pick it up with verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So why did Jesus teach in 
parables, Neil Lightfoot comments, the parables serve a double purpose. Revealing and concealing. Revealing truth to those accepting and appreciating it. Concealing truth from those attacking and abusing it. Now fasten your (laughs) seatbelt. Believe me. And watch this. Parables. Huh. Where to start? I got it. Two Texans walk into a saloon. No, that doesn't work. It's more of a joke. Parables. What are they? Spiritual lessons, not completely. Metaphors, well, kind of. Mind games, close, but not really. Stories with deeper meanings, nah. Vantage points, perspectives, clever illustrations, sort of, kind of, no. Riddles. Huh. So I was going to St. Ives. I met a man with seven wives. He's what? Nah. Well, it's closer, but it still ain't the whole enchilada. The dictionary calls them simple stories used to illustrate a moral spiritual lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. Well, that's wrong. But maybe I should be asking a different question altogether. Maybe we don't need to define what a parable is as much as discover why Jesus used them. So, put on your Sunday school hats and let's take a time rocket back to when Jesus walked the earth, shall we? Nice. Now put down your double espresso chai latte, sit up in your chair, and try to keep up with me if you can. Let's peek into Matthew and get a brief history of chapters 3 through 12. And when I say brief, I mean brief. John baptizes Jesus. The dove descends. His ministry begins. He's taken up a mountain, tempted by Satan, and he chooses his disciples. Here begins the amazing teaching chapters. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. The Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, watch out for false prophets. Don't worry. Go through the narrow gate. Build your house on the rock. Pray for your enemies. Deep stuff. Mind-boggling teaching. Now, enter the Pharisees. Testing Jesus, hoping to trip him up, fearing him. Moving forward, Jesus hangs out with his disciples. He gives them power to do great wonders. He tells people to take his yoke, for it's easy and his burden is light. And this slams us full speed right into the heart of chapter 12. The beginning of the day, the Pharisees attack Jesus for picking grain and feeding the disciples. Next, Jesus goes to the synagogue and heals a man, and the Pharisees don't like that either. And then he frees a demon-possessed man, and this really ticks him off. But here's where it all gets out of control. The Pharisees cross a line, a line that they never should have, by saying that Jesus cast out the demon through the power of Beelzebub. They actually ascribe the power of the Holy Spirit to the power of the devil, and that's a no-no, people, and that's where everything changes. Soon beginneth the parable speak. The straight, clear, and amazing teaching of Jesus switches to talking in parables. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us that once he starts speaking in parables, that he doesn't say anything to them without using a parable. You don't believe me? Read it for yourself in Matthew chapter 13. But you find the verse. This isn't a sit back and have everything spoon-fed to you, church. you got to bench press the word every now and then, people, okay? Anyway, the point is he switched gears. He changed tactics. He kicked a portion the fifth, if you know what I mean. You want to know why? Of course you do. That's why you're here. Part of it's prophecy. Psalm 78.2 says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things. Interesting. Hidden things. Parables. Already they're different than we first expected. Hey, the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables. Here's what he said. I'll put it in red so you know it's authentic. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Sound strange? Sound like double talk? Well, it ain't. It's the kicker. You get truth and you handle it right, you get more. You get truth and you reject it, even what you have is yanked away. So back to the happy lesson. What did most of the people, including the Pharisees, do with the clear truth of what Jesus taught and the miracles they saw with their own eyes. Remember, you hear teaching, you see miracles. That'll make sense in a second, I promise. Now, just when you thought it was safe to tell stories, Jesus hurls this one at him. And this settles the perplexing parable problem permanently, people. This is why I speak to them in parables, he says. Though seeing, they do not see. In hearing, they do not understand. That's Isaiah 6, folks. Words which don't conjure up colorful Pixarian visuals, if you know what I mean. The point is, the hearts of the people became calloused. They hardly hear with their ears anymore, and they have closed their eyes. And there it is, harsh stuff. They heard Jesus, but didn't really pay attention. They saw his miracles and close their eyes. They didn't believe. And now instead of the simple, straightforward teaching of chapters 3 through 12, what the crowds get are parables. Maybe so that those who are led by the Spirit will understand and those who aren't won't. Those who seek will find. Hmm. 
Perhaps Jesus is no longer casting pearls before swine. I don't know. Perhaps it's grace because if they understood and rejected him, it would be far worse than if they didn't understand at all. Then again, it could just be an ancient game of Scrabble, and Jesus just placed an X on the triple letter, triple word score, and the Pharisees are reaching in the black bag of legalism, hoping to find a blank just to stay in the game. Who knows? You read. You decide. Whatever's going on, we've discovered parables are a lot more than meets the eye. But perhaps the most important statement is crystal clear right there in the text for all of us to see right there in Matthew 13, 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Did you catch all that? Told you to fasten your seatbelt. In summary, then, Jesus taught in parables for two opposite reasons. Write these down in your notes. First, to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those whose eyes would see and whose ears would hear. And second, to conceal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven from those whose eyes would not see and whose ears would not hear. And it's all a question of motive and attitude. Then he told them many things in parables. I'm excited about where we're going to go and what we're going to learn over the next couple of months as we look at some of Jesus' most familiar and best loved parables together. Stories that change the world. So let's begin at the beginning with perhaps the first and the most fundamental parable of them all, the parable of the sower. Here in Matthew 13, also, by the way, found in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. But before we begin, let's pause and let's ask God to speak to us clearly. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we open Your Word together, would You open our eyes so we could see? Would You please open our ears so we would hear? Open our minds so that we could understand and open our hearts that we would receive the seed of Your Word, the truth, that it would be planted there, that it would grow and produce in us the fruit that You desire it to produce. So speak to us. We sit at Your feet, Lord Jesus. Be the Master Teacher. We're anxious as Your disciples to learn. Teach us today, I pray. In Your precious name. Amen. Okay, let's begin by looking at the Scripture together. As we work our way verse by verse through today's text, let's approach this parable under three headings. The setting, and then the story, and then the sense. Beginning with the setting. It's found in the first two verses. Matthew 13, verses 1 and 2. Look at it with me. Follow along in your Bible. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And so it's springtime in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret. And Jesus is being followed by such large crowds, it says here in the text, that he got into a boat, probably one owned by Peter and Andrew or James and John, and he pushes away from the shore just a bit 
And he sits down and he begins to teach all of the people as they stand on the shoreline. Now it doesn't take much imagination to picture that at that very moment a farmer is seen off in the distance scattering his seed along the ground. And Jesus calls attention to this common everyday scene and begins with the story. Let's look at it together. Matthew chapter 3, we pick it up with verse 3. Then He told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now again, I don't think that this story is difficult for us to understand. It was a familiar picture to Jesus' audience for sure. And as I said, perhaps there was even a farmer in sight as Jesus told this parable. The, the sower would walk along with his bag usually strapped to his waist, scattering the seed by hand. And as he did so, the seed would fall on four different kinds of ground. Some fell along the path. Now the land in Israel was divided into small plots. And there were no fences or walls to separate the plots, only narrow walkways that were accessible to everybody. And due to heavy foot traffic, these paths were well worn, and the seed that fell on these hard walkways had little or no chance for growth. Instead, the birds would often follow right behind the sower and eat the seed as fast as it was sown. Second, Jesus says, some fell on rocky places. Not only ground that was full of rocks, but also ground that was shallow because it had an underlying ledge of rock. We know what that's like around here, right? The seed that fell here would spring up very quickly, but because there was no room for root development, the plants would wither and die in the midday heat. Third, Jesus says, some seed fell among thorns. Not only ground that already was covered with thorns, but ground that, if you will, had an abundance of thorn seeds. And the weed seeds sprouted along with the good seed in the spring rains, but as weeds often do, you know this well, they outgrew and overcame the good plants, stunting their growth. And then forth, finally, Jesus says some seed fell on good soil. Ground that was loose and fertile, able to receive the good seed and allow it to grow and produce a crop. That's the story. Pretty simple and straightforward. Which brings us to the sense. So what's the sense of this story? What is the moral or the lesson that Jesus intended to teach us? Well, fortunately, this is one of only a couple of parables for which Jesus himself offered a full and complete explanation. In fact, follow along. Matthew chapter 13, go down to verse 18. Let's read these verses together. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. 
When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Three parts, really, to this story. Let's summarize the sense of this story then. The first part is the sower. And the sower is anyone who shares the message, any person who spreads the good news about Jesus Christ, anyone who shares the Word of God with someone else. The second part is the seed, which Jesus describes as the message about the kingdom. Luke 8 and verse 11 tells us that the seed is, in fact, the Word of God. And then thirdly, there is the soil which is, according to Jesus, anyone who hears the message. Specifically, it refers, Jesus says, to the heart of the hearer. The sower, the seed, and the soil. Now don't miss this. Jesus' emphasis in this parable is not on the sower or the seed. (laughs) Nothing wrong with the sower, nothing wrong with the seed. His emphasis is on the soil. It's not on the messenger of the message, but it's on the heart of the person who hears the message. And so the sense of the story is this. The growth and productivity of the seed that is sown is dependent upon the quality and the condition of the soil. Does that make sense? Okay. Or to put it plainly, fill in the blanks, there your notes. The result from any biblical truth that is taught, is dependent upon the heart of the hearer. The result from any biblical truth that is read or taught is dependent upon the heart of the hearer. Well, that's a look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from our study together? Well, if the main emphasis of this parable is on the heart of the hearer, then let's take a closer look at the lessons Jesus intended to teach us about our hearts. In fact, notice with me in more detail these four hearts that Jesus describes for us here in Matthew chapter 13. First of all, He talks about the surface heart. The surface heart. Again, here's what Jesus taught about the surface heart in verse 19. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you read this with me? When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. I want you to notice that the seed along the path is on, but not in the soil. The surface heart is so hard that the truth of Scripture cannot even penetrate the surface. 
And so Satan comes along and snatches away the seed, preventing any chance of it ever becoming fruitful. Now, how does the heart person or the hearer with a surface heart become so hardened, so calloused to biblical truth? I think the answer is found in Jesus' descriptive phrase in verse 19. He or she does not understand it. And it seems to me that there are two reasons why someone doesn't understand the truth of God's Word. The first is that the person might have a sin-hardened heart. A sin-hardened heart. This is, in fact, the person who cannot understand. (laughs) They have sinned. They are so mired in sin, in fact. They are held captive by sin. And they sin and they sin and they sin again. And as they sin, that develops a callous on their heart. You with me on this? So much so that the truth cannot even begin to penetrate that person's heart. Paul explains it this way. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. So they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news that is shining upon them. They don't understand the message. Know any people like that? Now to reach this person, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to bind Satan and to open the eyes of that sin-hardened person's heart. As Paul did in Ephesians 1 and verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We pray for them. The sin-hardened heart. But there's a second way people, I think, have hard hearts. And that is the sermon-hardened heart. The sermon-hardened heart. This is the person who will not understand. Now, the first was the person who cannot understand. This is the person who will not understand. It's It's the person who has made the willful choice to disregard the truth. They have heard the sermons. They have had people share with them the Word of God. They have perhaps even read the Word of God themselves. But every time their heart has been convicted of a change they need to make in their life, they reject it. They say, no, not yet, maybe later. Ever heard that one? And they say no again and again and again. Every time they say no, it builds up callous on their heart. To the point that now they can't even, because of their own choice, hear the truth. Jesus put it this way in those verses we just read a moment ago. Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. The sermon hardened heart. So first, we see the surface heart. Second, Jesus talks about the shallow heart. The shallow heart. Here's what Jesus said about the shallow heart in verses 20 and 21 of today's text. Again, would you read this out loud with me? Let's read this together. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the Word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. 
When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now, notice that the seed on rocky places is on and in, but not down in the soil. The shallow heart's immediately receptive to the good news of the truth of Scripture, but it doesn't take root in that person's life. And so as Jesus says here, when trouble or persecution comes, the person who at once received the truth just as quickly rejects the truth. Luke 8 verse 13 says it like this, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. I once heard someone say, it's easy to become a Christian, but it's not easy to be a Christian. It's easy to become a Christian, but it's not easy to be a Christian. I believe that describes someone with a shallow heart. This person joyfully receives Christ as his or her Savior and Forgiver, but is hesitant to follow Christ as his or her Lord or Leader. They have made a decision, but they have not become a disciple. The person desires the blessings of loving Christ without the responsibility of living for Christ. This person always asks, what can I get from Christ? Rather than asking, what can I give to Christ? A person's more into religion than into relationship. This person is more concerned with the outward appearance of what other people see than they are with inward character, what God sees. This person is a hearer of the Word, but not a doer of the Word. James 1, verses 22 through 24. Look that up later. This person is full of emotion, but not of conviction. This person is a good starter, but a very poor Finisher. Jesus put it this way, Luke 14, verses 28 through 30. Is there anyone here who, planning to build a new house, doesn't first sit down and figure the cost so you'll know if you can complete it? If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. He started something he didn't finish. Again, it's easy to become a Christian. But it's not easy to be a Christian. And for the person with a shallow heart, once some kind of difficulty comes along in life, like a layoff or a sickness, a tragedy, a broken relationship, a disagreement with a church or a pastor, a bit of ridicule from a family member, a friend, or a work associate, he or she quickly falls away. Why? Because he or she has no roots. Their faith is only superficial. So second, we see the shallow heart. Third is the strangled heart. The strangled heart. Read out loud with me what Jesus said here in verse 22 about the strangled heart. Let's read this together, shall we? The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the Word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the Word, making it unfruitful. Now notice here that the seed among the thorns is on and in 
and down in the soil, but not back up from the soil. See, the strangled heart is receptive to the Bible's message, but the truth cannot be productive because the person is being choked spiritually. And what is it that strangles them? Jesus says two things, notice in the verse. First of all, He talks about the worries of this life. Interesting, this word worries here implies something that distracts or something that divides. In other words, anything that competes for our time and energy and loyalty that rightfully belongs to Christ, anything that comes between us and our relationship with God is a worry. The worries of this life. And then secondly, Jesus says, the deceitfulness of wealth. Mark 4 verse 19 translates it, the desire for things... (laughs) Stuff. And Luke 8.14 simply uses the word pleasures. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. Whichever the case, or both, the person with a strangled heart is, notice, unfruitful. Unfruitful. He or she bears little or no fruit in their Christian life. Well, what are some thorns that strangle us or choke us spiritually? Job? Career? Education? Money? Things? Success? Entertainment? Sports? Recreation? Pleasure? Relationships? Television? Social media. The list of distractions is simply too long to exhaust it. The busyness of our fast-paced lives with all of our competing options often crowds out that which is the most important and that is our relationship with Christ. So it doesn't surprise me that Jesus gets on our face with these penetrating questions in Matthew 16 and verse 26. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? Whoa. Sometimes we lose that perspective though, don't we? So third, we see the strangled heart. And then fourth, Jesus talks about the submissive heart. The submissive heart. Jesus' instruction about the submissive heart is found in verse 23. In fact, again, let's read this out loud together. Would you read it with me? The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, notice that the seed on good soil is on and in and down and back up again from the soil. The submissive heart is receptive to the truths and principles of God's Word, the Bible, and this produces fruit in the person's life as a Christ follower. Like Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 20, by their fruit you will recognize them. 
It's true of anybody, but the person with a submissive heart is easily recognizes he or she becomes more and more like Christ in what they do and say and think. And this fruit of Christ-likeness is in abundance, by the way. It's not just a little bit of fruit. It's a whole lot of fruit. In fact, John 15 verse 8 says that a true follower of His would bear much fruit. you see that? How much is much? It's more than what you got. Bear much fruit, showing themselves to be My disciples. And so finally we see the submissive heart. Okay, so here's the bottom line. Here's the lesson Jesus intended to teach us in this parable. Here's the question that each and every one of us needs to ask himself or herself this morning, and that is, what kind of heart do I have today? What kind of heart do I have today? Do I have a surface heart? The seed, the truth of Scripture, doesn't even have a chance because my heart is so hardened by sin or by sermons, so callous that the truth can't even penetrate it? Do I have a shallow heart? The seed, the truth of Scripture makes sense, but I haven't really allowed it to take root deep in my life. Do I have a strangled heart? the seed, the truth of Scriptures in my heart, but it's being choked out by all of the busyness and the distractions that I've allowed to creep into my life. Or do I have a submissive heart? The seed, the truth of Scripture is deep within my heart and it is daily producing more and more and more fruit in my character and in my behavior. What kind of heart do I have? Stories that change the world. This morning we've begun this new series by studying the parable of the sower, perhaps the first and certainly the most fundamental of all of Jesus' parables. Here's what I want you to do right now. In your bulletin, you should have a little heart like this. I'd like for everybody to take that out right now, would you? Would you humor me by doing that? Take that and put it in your hand for just a moment. I wanted to give you something that you could take home, literally, as a visual reminder of today's lesson. This is a sticker, by the way. You can peel off the back and it'll stick someplace. And so I encourage you to put this heart someplace where you're going to see it Every day. On your bathroom mirror, on your refrigerator, on your computer screen, on the dashboard of your car, wherever it may be. And every time that you see this heart, I want you to ask yourself this question. What kind of heart do I have today? What kind of heart do I have today? Let me close by reading Proverbs 4 and verse 23. It says, Above all else, guard your investment portfolio, for it determines the course of your life. That's not what it says? Oh, oh, sorry about that. No, no, not investment portfolio. Heart. Sorry about that. It says, Above most everything else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. Is that what it says? 
No. It doesn't say above most everything else. It says above all else. So let's read the entire verse correctly out loud together. Would you read it with me? Above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. Yeah. Let's pray. Father God, would that be true of us, that we would guard our hearts, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open to hear and to see, that we would not be like the Pharisees, that we would not have surface hearts or shallow hearts or strangled hearts, but that we would have submissive hearts. Fertile soil where the seed of Your Word can be planted and where it can sprout and where it can produce the fruit that You intend for it to produce in our lives. May each one of us, O God, before You today honestly examine our hearts and know whatever changes we need to make, that we would make them. And as we begin this new year and this new series of lessons together, may we be the good soil, the fertile soil, the submissive hearts. Thank You for teaching us this morning from Your Word. In Jesus' name. Amen.